and welcome back to Sharp Scratch. You're listening to episode 77, Do Doctors Do What They Preach? This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where medical students, junior doctors and expert guests come together and discuss all the things you need to know to be a good doctor, but that you might not get to our medical school. I'm Pat, I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm also a medical student at Agley Ruskin University. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by our friends Anisha and Izzy. Anisha, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Anisha. I'm currently Foundation Year One in South Thames Deanery, and I went to King's for medical school. Cool, great to have you joining us on this episode. And Izzy, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Izzy. I am currently in that weird phase in between uh, finals and F1. Um, So I'm in my assistantship, and I am at Nottingham. And yeah, um, I haven't actually recorded with Anisha before, I've just realised. Yeah, That's I was, fun I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a nice new combo and yeah, nice to have you joining us for this episode. And I'm also delighted to introduce our expert guest today, Professor Erica Frank. Erica, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, hi. I'm Erica Frank. I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia. I'm in the Faculty of Medicine. Uh, both within the School of Population and Public Health and the Department of Family Medicine. And I came to the University of British Columbia in 2006 from Emory University and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And I came here as the Canada Research Chair in Preventive Medicine and Population Health. Oh, cool. Thank you for joining us all the way from Canada. As the saying goes, prevention is better than cure. At medical school, we learn about the risk factors and modifiable lifestyle behaviours for preventable conditions. One may think that having this knowledge would prompt us to adopt a healthy lifestyle. But do we do what we preach? For this episode, I thought we could chat about our health habits and also discuss how this may influence the way we counsel our patients about prevention and health-promoting behaviours. So Anisha and Izzy, um, I remember when I posted this question on a Sharp Scratch group chat, I think you already had some, some answers to the question. Yeah, what, what did you think about um, the statement, uh, well, well, rather the question whether doctors do what they preach? I think to start with, sometimes it's not always possible to do what we preach. For example, you have patients. This is a common scenario I have. Patient looks a bit dehydrated, or well, maybe could just do with drinking a bit more. And it's always plan one, encourage oral hydration. It's probably, it's 4.30pm and I just haven't had time to sit down and just have a glass of water. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> I wish someone wrote that in my plan. Um, I think that's pretty, that's a big one that I always think, oral hydration. Um, a lot of the time, you just don't get time to practice the things that you preach. I managed to get pyelonephritis in one of my first placements. Uh, oh my God. because of that yeah in both kidneys it was not pleasant oh my you got it from placement yeah <laughs> not drinking enough it was really bad and now I always go around with like a water bottle in my hand like right right <laughs> <laughs> that's oh good you're gosh. practicing what you preach that's good but I I think I also had like a similar sort of thing I was thinking of I was thinking from more of my own experiences of uh, what do I get told by my own doctors? And then what do, you know, I go and tell uh, patients when I'm like on the wards? And what do uh, the clinical teaching fellows tell us to tell patients? And then what do I go and do? I do the complete opposite. Um, so it's like, 
I'm just I'm the worst for that like you know with like mental health and stuff like well-being and especially after covid it's like you need to get outside you need to you know people say your yoga medita- meditation I no I will not do that like in a million years um but you know get outside and get some fresh air after placement like you need to make sure you spend time with other people you don't just isolate yourself um and you know I'll tell patients that as well that you know and it's true that is something you, you should do like um I've just uh, come back from a cycle ride um and that was really good for me but you know most most evenings after placement I will just flop in bed and stay there <laughs> and I will not move and you know, my, my GP asked, like, oh, what did you do? Like, why why are things getting worse? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I can't possibly think. Um, and we both know exactly why it is. Um, but it's it's because, you know, we're so tired after long days. And especially if I was thinking, why am I so tired? And it's like, I also have, like, an hour and a half travel each way to placement. Like, I'm in Derby at the moment, and it's if the traffic's bad it can be an hour on the bus each way and then I have to walk half an hour to the bus stop on top of that which means it's three hours travel on top of what a nine eight nine hour day which is a long day and then you also have to find time to you know make time for well-being and I'm like well no I'm not going to do that <laughs> so, yeah it's tough and then what do I tell my patients that <laughs> yeah maybe Maybe I could dive here, dive in here a little. It's not I, I, I just first to deal with this really important tangent because this is um, this is one way in which medical schools put likely unnecessarily a burden on students, and there are um, I can tell you it gets talked about at the administrator level a lot. But it is um, a piece where I think that um, medical students and residents who have the same kind of conundrum ought to organize and figure out um, how to get the medical schools to find them closer placements. It's it, especially in as small uh, an island as you live on, um, it is. Uh, possible to be able to do that. And having organized this for residents um, and having resident placements uh, from Atlanta, Georgia in places as far spun, uh, far flung as Alaska and Europe, um, it's what you do if you caringly accommodate med students and really care about their well-being. You find nearby placements. So I am, and you work collaboratively with the medical students to provide housing when nearby placements are not spontaneously available. So, yeah. 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 But I think, you know, but when we, to go back into like the topic, but when we tell patients who come in saying, I'm burnt out at work, I have long 12 hour days and I don't, and I'm just so tired at the end of it. And we say, ah, yes, you need to, um, go and go for a walk at the end of the day and make time to, to do exercise and um, maybe join a yoga class or, you know, and people do like on social media say, 
oh yes, uh, um, you know, have a bath and <laughs> have a bath and read a book. It's it is laughed about, and it people do notice it. Um, and I think it's important that we recognise it as health professionals, future health professionals. I certainly endorse the conundrum of what you're saying, and it really is to the essence of this. So what do you do with that conundrum? Maybe we could start there. But one thing is you try to avoid punishing your patients for things that might be hard for you, but you know them to be important anyway, right? So um, just having the knowledge that um, our data has shown in 100 plus papers that what you do yourself influences what you typically talk to your patients about. So Mm -hmm. if you're finding it hard to exercise, certainly it's worthy of a discussion we should have here about how to help that for you. But at minimum, it means that you don't have your patients not get this important advice just because you're finding it difficult, right? So that's that's the first thing to do with this piece of knowledge is just recognize that if it's hard for you, that you're going to be less likely to talk to your patients about it. And that's, to me, the most essential thing to do with this knowledge is to make sure that our patients still get our best advice, even if we're finding it personally difficult. And we have data that shows that where we talk about ways that we've been able to overcome barriers and admit that we find it hard, that that doesn't hurt our prospects of getting patients to do likewise. So for example, today, Izzy, you might've said something like, um, you know, gosh, it is so hard to do this and so hard sometimes to find the time, especially as a medical student, to to be able to get out and be in nature and exercise. But this afternoon, I am going to, before I do these other tasks, I'm going to go for a bike ride. And because I know that this is key for me. And so simultaneously admitting that it's important and difficult is actually something you can do to help your patients. We often get told that we have to portray ourselves as infallible, but it's clearly not not the case. And when we admit it and talk about how how we try to overcome these barriers, it actually helps our patients find us according to our data Um, find us more believable and more credible and more motivating as well. So it's okay to admit that it's hard, but we ought to at least make sure that the patients, that our patients get the benefit of our counsel. So I know that you've done quite a bit of research looking into kind of doctors' personal health behaviours like alcohol consumption and physical activity and subsequently their counselling um, advice to their patients. Yeah, what, um, what kind of findings did you find? Well, one of the articles you're referring to is a paper we published in the British Medical Journal, in fact. We've looked at this uh, set of behaviours, the primary drivers of morbidity and mortality globally 
diet, exercise, alcohol, and tobacco for preventable causes, at least in high-income countries, uh, but increasingly uh, globally as well. And so we wanted to affect, uh, in particular, those four areas and also look at others like sleep in particular that may affect physicians and patients. And so we've looked at those data in the U.S. and Canada, in Colombia, in uh, Laos and Cambodia, um, and found quite consistently with both medical students and physicians, with both genders, that we do indeed tend to practice what we preach, that there is a strong and consistent relationship and fairly specific to the actual behavior as well. So someone might do great on, you know, not over drinking alcohol, but might do poorly on diet and exercise, right? So there's a very strong and consistent and tight relationship between what we do ourselves as physicians and what we talk to our patients about. And in fact, we even showed that, as I mentioned in this British Medical Journal article with uh, U.S. medical students and their drinking habits, their alcohol drinking habits, all the way up to an article that we published with 1.9 million patients and 1,500 docs in Israel, looking at their electronic health records, showing that for eight different personal health practices, that if your physician did it themselves, things like monitoring blood pressure, checking cholesterol, uh, getting flu, flu vax, etc. that if your doc did it themselves, that you were more likely to have had that procedure done, regardless of your other risk factors. And that really, again, is the key. This strong, consistent relationship between what we do ourselves and what we talk to our patients about. So it is yet viewed, I think, in the most holistic way, it is yet another reason for us to take seriously our self-care. I really resonate with everything you've just said. I think it's more about experiential kind of learning. I think when you're transitioning, and I really I really feel for Izzy, because when you're transitioning into becoming well, a doctor or, you know, I'm supposed to be someone who, you know, has everything together and I'm supposed to be the poster girl or boy for health it's really difficult to put yourself in that situation when actually when you're going to work day to day you're not feeling like that you're feeling burnt out you don't have time to work out you don't have time to drink water or do any of the things that perhaps used to help you feel sane but then I think it's kind of a learning experience and it's kind of a a time to take a step back and look at yourself as a patient and think okay how can I improve my life what's making my life miserable? What am I not doing that's resulting in the deterioration of my health? And then I found that I've picked up or re-picked up tiny habits, which maybe I used to have time for before when I wasn't burnt out as a, as a doctor. And when you reincorporate those, those things back into your life, I have noticed that I, I encourage patients to do them more as well. So I had a, I had a, my my second rotation was psychiatry and it was around about that moment when I was I was feeling quite low and I was I was struggling to just keep up with life in general as an F1 and you end up feeling the benefits of squeezing in that run early in the morning or when you come back from work even if you don't want to or reading that book or 
you know, talking a bit more to your friends and family and just doing the things that you know you're supposed to do. And that experience, when you feel the positive benefits yourself, you you radiate that onto your patients naturally. It doesn't, it's not an effort. It's not, oh, I'm writing this down because my consultant told me to. It's because actually I know this works and it worked for me. So naturally I'm, I want my patient to feel this too. And you're much more passionate about it when you say it as well. I really resonate with everything Erica's just said. Um, and it's just about taking a step back and, you know, I'm, I'm a person too. I'm, I can be a patient as well. And, yeah just 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 looking at yourself as a patient sometimes you need you need someone to give you some compassion sometimes it has to come from you yeah and can i can i suggest that you know anisha you and Issy just modeled that here right so you talked about how it was hard for you to have time to do something at the bottom of maslow's hierarchy right adequate hydration you know and Issy responded with a yeah that happened to me too and here is my life hack for how i can do it you know i have a a lab coat or a knapsack or whatever that's capacious enough to hold a water bottle right and um likewise um one of my um one of my life hacks that i've published on a lot um is i probably 10 hours a week work with my laptop on my stationary bicycle. Um, and I've done that since medical school um, with a textbook. And I just sit there oh, and wow. read instead, right? And um, I love that. It's, it, it's like, I need that. I love it, right? Because you have to find things that you can do that don't introduce laughable amounts of time, like taking a bath and reading a book. Like, I might. Yeah. That's that you're right. That's like for medical students and for a lot of docs by choice when you're a doc, it's just, it's a laughable suggestion and it's not something that would bring me pleasure, but figuring out how to multitask and go for a walk with a friend outside that accomplishes three things. Um, take the stairs at the hospital instead of waiting for an elevator and encouraging your friends to do likewise. That accomplishes things too, right? Um, making choices in the cafeteria and encouraging the cafeteria administrators to make it easy to make healthy choices. Um, having earplugs available in call rooms or just in your pockets so that when you do get a chance to catch some much needed sleep, you can, right? So things like that, that where we can help each other figure out practical ways that don't add to our excessive time burdens, that really is something useful we can do for each other and for our patients. So I think we've spoken about um, kind of when you're practicing those positive healthy behaviours, uh, you're more likely to kind of project that on your patient. Um, we also know ourselves or maybe our peers uh, sometimes maybe party a little too hard or I mean like some of the medics I know they're probably like one of the like hardest party goers and yeah I don't know if you've ever uh, kind of felt awkward or guilty about kind of imposing 
not restrictions, I guess like suggesting these kind of healthy habits to your patients when you know that sometimes you may not those do those healthy Yeah, practices. there's the there's the old joke of don't drink more than I do, right? That's sort of how it used to be presented. And again, we're talking about alcohol alcohol here, not water, right? Um, that was the sort of old truism that my mentors were given. Uh, so yeah, there is the element of feeling hypocritical, right? And wanting to indeed be able to practice what you preach. But again, you need to divide it into two separate places in your brain um, in some ways to recognize the fact that typically, you know, if you party hard, we have data, for example, showing that if you drink excessively, you're less likely to counsel your patients about alcohol and you're less likely to think it relevant to counsel your patients about alcohol. And it's, um, it's quite consistent, right? So it runs not only through, you know, these kinds of behaviors where you might feel reluctance to admit your own behaviors, but even things like mm-hmm. sunscreen or colorectal mm-hmm. cancer screening or any of 14 different personal basic health practices, um, diet and exercise and tobacco mm-hmm. among them. Um, if you, if you have healthier practices yourself, you are more likely to talk to your patients about it. There is a healthy doc, healthy patient relationship. And with these Israeli data, with these 1.9 million patients, we showed that it not only is that you're more likely to talk to your patients about related healthy issues if you do them yourself, but your patients are more likely to actually receive screenings, um, so it's not just counseling, it's also actual, you know, vaccinations and screenings that they'll get if you practice healthier personal habits yourself, or at least have the reflectivity, the self-reflective capacity to be able to say, I struggle with this myself, but this is what best medical practice is and manage to deliver yeah. that in a compelling way. Sorry, I thought I, I misunderstood that. I thought it, I, I assumed it was what you just mentioned at the end. So if a doctor or someone is trying to also overcome that, then they'd also encourage their patients to overcome um, something. There is some data on that as well, that um, if you're trying, if you're actively trying to overcome it, again, if you're working to overcome barriers um, and can share those with your patients and be willing to demonstrate your fallibility, but your dedication to fixing it, right? Um, because you know it's important that that's encouraging to patients. So having healthy practice yourself, trying to be healthier yourself, or at least getting out of the way of your providing good counsel to your patients, even if you don't have healthy practices yourself, that I think is part of the obligation. I find that really interesting because I think personally, if I, if I was the patient in this situation, I'd feel kind of like this is my consult i i this is about me it's not like i know this sounds vain but it's it's not about you that like i didn't come to talk about you and 
I think it would that this is a issue that I think quite a few people often think about when it comes to uh you know the whole argument around lived experience and all that sort of thing but how do you put your own experiences into your practice and where's the where's the ideal line and I think that what you just said there of the you know the count the patient patient counseling in the healthy lifestyle and you know the that patient's if they see their doctor is more likely, you know, their doctor's doing something, that they're more likely to do it. That is probably the way that, that's probably where it is. The That's the good way to do it because it's almost like the role model idea as opposed to um, the, this is about me, follow my story and you can be my disciple in a way. <laughs> um, but... Um, I think, yeah, I, I think that's just a, like always like a, just something that comes into my mind about that, the, when you're saying that, oh, um, you know, their patients are more likely to do what their doctor does and and support their doctor's, well, not support, but like follow their the doctor's habits and, you know, the whole thing of when people say, oh, my experience dictates my practice. I, I think there's there is the, the like the scale of where do we where's where's it, where does it become good practice best practice and then go into mm, this is maybe not the best practice and I think that is what you've just said of you know acting as a role model is this is what I do maybe maybe doctors aren't invincible we aren't perfect look, I'm having to work on myself as well. But I'm not saying that um, my practice... I'm not saying that you have to follow my whole journey, my story, this is my life. I think that's probably a good and interesting way to put it, which I've never really thought about, which is interesting. I I don't think that is the case. I think realistically that any time you have to see a patient is very short whether you're in a GP or you're doing ward rounds, there's simply not enough time for the doctor to go off on a tangent and say, this is what I've been doing. There's, I don't think there's enough time for that. I don't think anyone is doing that. But I think my interpretation of the papers that Eric has been talking about is naturally in your mind, whilst you're on ward round or doing your consultation, something will, an idea will pop into your head and you'll suggest that to your patient. It's not necessarily you spend five minutes talking about, I did this and it really helped me. This is how I started. This is what I'm doing now. I think this, I think you should do this. I don't, I don't think it's about that. I think it's, I think it's about, um, we have guidelines to follow for, you know, every disease possible in the world. But I think things we're talking about here are, yes, within guidelines still, but I think it's going maybe to working outside guidelines slightly for a more familiar or friendly conversation between two humans instead of between a doctor and a patient. It's more like we were saying before, you suggest things to your friends. I always tell my friends to put sunscreen on. I'm like, put sunscreen on. There's UV rays outside. It's kind of, I think, making that dynamic and shifting it to your patient as well. Reminding my patient, 
wear your sunscreen or make sure you're drinking enough water. I I kind of interpret all of this to that as opposed to thinking about where you draw the line with things because obviously with major illnesses you know you're going to follow you're going to follow guidelines and rules and regulations and everything but I think I interpret this as more the lifestyle things where yes there are certain guidelines in place because if things get severe they need to be followed but when you're in that kind of prevention mode there aren't as many strict guidelines and I think that's where as a doctor you have a bit more flexibility and the option to introduce things that you might think have helped you or you might have read that might help and that kind of lived experience aspect of it because I think it just makes you a bit more passionate when you're encouraging your patients to do so obviously I'm not I'm not talking about going out and doing you know encouraging patients to do strange things that you know that are you know bizarre kind of medications or anything like that um but yeah I just want to um, supplement this with a little more literature. So um, these, you know, diet, exercise, alcohol, and tobacco cause nearly half of mortality um, in high-income countries. And like I said, also increasing amounts of mortality about to overtake communicable diseases in low- and middle-income countries as well. Um, so these are, you know, these interventions are our obligation every bit as much as prescribing an antihypertensive is, right? So I want to make sure that the importance and seriousness of this are, are clear. But the other thing is that there are data also showing that patients have no interest in your country club, but the interventions that I talked about are all 30 seconds or less of talking about this is what I have done specifically right now. It's a life hack, right? I rode my bike to work. Here's my bike helmet and here's my apple that I brought in, for example. That's how I, you know, did that 30 second intervention. And it's, it's demonstrably with just those 30 seconds of saying, I'm a human being too. These are some of my life hacks. I, I do this even though it's hard because I know how important it is for my health and I'm recommending it to you because it is, of course, the same importance or even more for you, for your health, right? So, yeah, I think that one one brings an evidence-based um, approach that isn't, as you're suggesting, Izzy, about vanity or um, or catharsis for the doc, but is 30 seconds of this is what I've done as a fallible human and found to be successful with this thing that I know is hard, but nonetheless is important for both of us to do. That that kind of technique of motivational interviewing um, is really, really effective. We'll talk a little bit more about whether there's an association between doctors and patients' health, but that'll be right after this message from our sponsor. Indemnity. You've probably not given it much thought, but it won't be long until the risk of claims and patient complaints becomes all too real. Whatever lies ahead, you need experts in your corner who offer indemnity and a whole lot more. That's why it pays to be with Medical Protection. There's our free membership during your medical school years, 
our wealth of training resources to help you become the best doctor you can be, and our international experience that protects you during your elective, no matter how far from home you end up. In fact, there are many reasons why our members worldwide trust us to support and protect them throughout their careers. And if you're looking for one more, every week, one lucky new joiner wins £200. That's the average student weekly spend. Just join for free and you're automatically entered into the draw. That's why UK medical students choose to be part of medical protection. You can't blame them, so why not join them? Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. I think also as you identify places in your curriculum that would allow better self-care, as we were talking about at the beginning, for example, in the cafeteria, there aren't healthy choices available or in vending machines, there aren't healthy choices available. Um, back in the dark ages, when I was a medical student, I got uh, our hospital to stop uh, selling tobacco. That was a pretty obvious one, but you know, I got some flack from it. But part of what you're doing as a medical student in thinking about these things is thinking about your future health and your patients and communities' future health mm-hmm. and learning how to create in a place where you, you may not feel like you have a lot of power, but you do, um, mm-hmm. where you and your classmates can identify problems and bring them to your deans of students because every dean of students is trying, is legitimately struggling, I think, with how can I make my medical students' lives less painful, right? And so Mm -hmm. if you come with uh, identified issues and solutions, it is, I think, something that administration would smile on. And if they don't, you can reach me at the University of British Columbia and I'll help you get them to smile on it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And that that goes for your listeners as well. Um, Learning to be an advocate for one's own health and for the health of your patients. That's what my whole career has been about. Mm. And uh, I think that extrapolating that to ever broader communities, including the entire community of uh, medical learners, is where I found the most effective place, I believe, that I can practice preventive medicine. So um, this really matters. It really matters for you as a human being. It really matters to promote prevention with your patients as well. And for you to be able to do it in a way that makes you feel like, oh, I do do some of this for myself too. I am trying to be ever healthier and balance um, all of the demands on my time. And I do talk to my friends and colleagues about it to get some ideas for life hacks. And I do go to people who are responsible for my activities of daily living, like medical school administrators and eventually employers. And I say, this is something that I've noticed that's a problem for myself and others. And here are a couple ideas of how to fix it inexpensively. Those are super important skills for you to practice as a medical student. Yeah, and Erica, um, so you mentioned about healthy doctor and healthy patient um, quite a few times. And 
I think like with all the you know physician burnout and everything that's been going on uh, like with healthcare workers, I think it's a really interesting interesting perspective about you know if we have a healthy workforce, we can kind of go then and look after patients and make them become healthier. And yeah, I was just wondering. Um, I think you've set up this idea quite a number of years ago. I was just wondering how how this came about. Yeah, I was riding my exercise, studying for boards for my preventive medicine boards as a postdoc at Stanford, and I was reading about the men. It wasn't called that; it was called the Physicians Health Study, but the the Men Physicians Health Study, where they basically just randomly assigned men docs aspirin as well as looking at other interventions, but no one had looked at what the effect was of just being a physician, right? It just occurred to me, this is a, you know, it's great that you test aspirin on them, but what about all the other effects of just being a physician? And so from that came the idea for the Women Physicians Health Study and got the uh, first grant for $24,000 and figured out how to get really cheap postage to uh, send out questionnaires and managed to get a decent response rate. But it was entirely provoked by thinking of, A, this is an underutilized population with a significant natural experiment, and that that natural experiment was, what does it do to someone's health? When you send them to medical school, teach them all this information, give them high educational attainment, high occupational status, and high income, what happens to their personal health practices? And as it turns out, it improves them. And that's great. And all of these subsequent pieces linking physician health with patient health build on that natural link between what we do and what we talk to our patients about. So there are both direct and indirect ways in which there is this healthy doc, healthy patient link. Yeah, and I suppose like just um, to round off this episode, is there anything else that you would like to add about, yeah, how we can look after ourselves and therefore we can look after our patients? Because I think um, doctors' well-being is really, well, it should always be a hot topic, but I think especially with um, things like burnout, um, it's really brought to the fore about how we should look after ourselves? Well, I've been accused of being a pillar of positivity. I really do think that docs do tend fairly early on, maybe human beings tend fairly early on, to sort themselves into cohorts that are going to feel perennially burnt out and unhappy and into people who are going to, no matter what or close to no matter what things get thrown of us are going at at us are going to constantly feel reminded of the privilege of being able to be a physician. And I, as a young doc was warned many times about my 80 plus hour work weeks, but I'm Mm. turning 60 next Friday and I'm still working 80 plus hour work weeks, right? I'm sitting, I'm sitting in my house talking to you guys and that counts as part of my work week, right? And Mm. that's a rather pleasant activity. um, And it's an honor. So I do think that that is part of the self-care that we can do is sort of 
uh, hokey attitude of gratitude kinds of things and realizing trying to feel the same way or close to it on occasion that we felt when we got into medical school. What an incredible feeling that was, right? And how we knew that we were going to be on this hard but hugely rewarding path that would allow us to become self-actualized and help the world at the same time, right? Personal health is the same stuff. It allows us to be self-actualized while helping the world at the same time. Yeah. That's actually such a good reminder. I think just reminding why you got into medicine in the first place. I think it, yeah, it makes you realize, I guess everything is kind of worth it. Like you have so much drive in the beginning. Yeah. I remember the feeling of getting into med school and I remember going, waking up my parents at 6.50 AM because of course UCAS didn't open at the time it said it would. Um, And I remember it was exactly the same feeling like two months ago when I found out two months ago well, a month and a half ago, when I found out, like, I passed finals. And, like, I nearly collapsed on the spot. And it was like, but, like, it was like, oh, that's what it was for. Okay, I get that now. And it's like, there's a reason you do this. Like, there, there is a reason. Even, like, my mum asked me, uh, my mum my asked me a few weeks back, like, if you had the choice that like, you went back five years you know, to 18-year-old self starting medical school, would you do it again? And that's a question. <laughs> that is a, I'm not going to say what my answer was, but that's a question. I ask myself and that every day. <laughs> oh, wow. But, but the but answer like, is always you know, yes. <laughs> but, but you're so naive when you're 18. You've just come out of secondary school. And, you know, even when you're a gem, I guess. Um, just, there's another yeah. BMJ article I... Um, that I wrote that on this that I'd recommend you. And it's on the very strong relationship between belittlement and harassment of medical students. Mm-hmm. And they're wanting to, if they were to do it all over again, and also of suicidality, um, also of other depression and other interim problems. And so this is another way in which self-care and sticking up for yourself can be a good thing to do. And I want to, I want to, I want to tell you one story from junior year of medical school. I was a junior medical student, third year med student on surgery. Mm -hmm. And I had just helped to get this great new policy through about no smoke, no selling of tobacco in the, in the hospital. And fairly recently only had there been policy that you couldn't smoke in the hospital. So I'm walking down the hall and on my surgery rotation, and there's this man walking in front of me, smoking a cigar, wearing a white coat. And so I walk up to him and I say, excuse me, sir, um, did you know that there's no smoking in the hospital anymore? And he looked at me and he said, young lady, do you know who I am? This was in Georgia, hence the accent. And um, I said, no, sir. And he said, and I'm going to name him. He said, my name is Dr. Ellis Evans, and I'm the chief of surgery. And I said, well, sir, then you should know the rules. 
<laughs> and he just like his jaw just dropped. He went and put out his cigar in the ashtrays that were still conveniently located in the surgical ward hallways. And my and the thing that everybody wants to know, right? So what did my surgery assessment say? Lots of nice stuff. And then under weaknesses, the only weakness mentioned was Erica has interests other than surgery. <laughs> <laughs> which was, you know, a fact that I was willing to admit. So, yeah, learning to stand up for yourself, not letting your patients get bullied or harassed, not letting them get lousy food or bad recommendations. It's all part of an ecosystem that we create as health professionals, that we have the honor to create as health professionals that makes the wor world a better, healthier place. I love that. On that wholesome note, I think um, we came around on this episode. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's a pleasure. For, for me as well. I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to hearing from your listener advocates who, who need a hand making uh, people put out their cigars or the like. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that's all we have time for today. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving us a review on wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people you know. Tell your friends about it. That really helps people to find the show. And um, please keep in touch. I love hearing your thoughts on the show, especially trends you find interesting in medicine or at med school right now. You can find us on social media. We are BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you would like to hear other episodes, please subscribe to Chat Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And, and in two weeks' time, you'll be notified about our next episode. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Bye-bye. <laughs>